It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. It's an understatement to say that alcohol plays a central role in American social life. But more and more, people are taking a harder look at their drinking and thinking about making changes. If you look at alcohol through the lens of, you know what, I can have fun without it. I've had experiences, I've gone to football games, I've gone to weddings, I've done all these fun things without alcohol. It makes it easier to question how alcohol is interacting with your life. Dry January has become a household term and drink menus are starting to seem incomplete without mocktail options. That's in part because of hard work from people in what's called the Sober Curious Movement. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations presented at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Health. Being sober curious doesn't necessarily mean going cold turkey and doesn't have to come with stigma or shame. Three experts on a panel at Aspen Ideas Health explain. Chris Marshall founded the first sober bar in North America, Sands Bar, and works to build inclusive, alcohol-free communities. Jen Batchelor started Ken Euphorics, a non-alcoholic beverage company, after confronting family health issues related to alcohol. They both joined Katie Wickowitz, a professor and clinical psychologist working on substance abuse, for a conversation about sober curiosity. Journalist Amanda Eisenberg, the founding editor of Healthcare Brew, moderates the conversation. Here's Eisenberg. We've been having some conversations about how drinking often feels compulsory, right? You go out for a cocktail, you're waiting for your table at a restaurant, it's so easy to just get a drink. But, you know, drinking these cocktails, you really feel like you're engaging in a sense of community, it's really fun. Can you talk, uh, Jen, a little bit about how you got into creating Kin? Because I feel like yes. that's at the, at the center of your business. Thank you, yeah. So, you know, as you said, it's at the center of my business, it's at the center of my life. Arriving at this work was very much a karmic journey. Um, I am a third generation distiller of social libations. I just chose to hang my hat on a different type of spirit. Um, one that decidedly decentered alcohol, ethyl alcohol, right, from uh, the narrative and from the ritual of gathering and celebration. I couldn't unlearn the things that I started to find out about after I turned 30, after my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. The list goes on and on and on, and the fact that alcoholism does run in my family, which only after I forced the issue did we admit that as a family, right? So all of these things came to the surface um, in a manner of about three years. And for me, it was like, how do we bring celebration and sex appeal and um, elevation, right? This, like, this joyous thing that is real when an alcoholic spirit arrives at the table. I can't think of a dinner where uh, the water carafe landed that anyone even batted an eyelash, right? But when the champagne bottle comes out, it's like, party time! So what is it about that that gets people emotionally driven towards a drinking experience and bonds people around a table, a bar, a conversation? Can we retain that even in a non-alcoholic experience and make it so that someone feels proud, excited, um, and ultimately elevated through our drinks, in particular use functional uh, herbs and nootropics and other um, agents that help us to feel more lively, uh, in a sense. So that to me was the ultimate challenge. It was like, it's 2020 at the time. We, we launched in, in 2017, but at that time I'm like, oh my God, it's almost 2020. There has to be a better way. 
Does anyone have a better idea? And so I started asking that question, and Kin was born in 2018, and we haven't stopped. Yeah, your drink's wonderful. Thank you. Um, Katie, like, what was your experience trying this? I love it. It's fantastic. Um, it's really a tasty, all of these are tasty beverages, but what I love most about both Kin and Sandsbar from the perspective of, and this whole panel, and thank you all for coming and, and being here and Aspen Health inviting us, because I love that we're in a session on thriving, and I'm a clinical psychologist. I work with people who struggle with alcohol problems and with alcohol use disorder. I offer treatments for people. And we, I really like to focus all of that work on wellness and well-being and functioning and thriving. And to have these fun, joyful alternatives that are still celebratory, that are still something that tastes really good and you enjoy it. It's, it's really a, a gift to our, to our society who really, you know, all of us need to cut back on our drinking for those who drink. We, we know that it's toxic and we can have better wellness through that. And so having these alternatives uh, really provides a way of still having a celebration or still having some joy and fun and, and taste without having the toxins. So I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, and Chris, um, Chris um, curated the bar for you all today. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, like how did you get into this space and what, what kind of drives you to think about um, drinks creatively? Well, I, I love that this is about joy and it's about celebration. Uh, but the genesis of Sandspartan is not rooted in joy or celebration. Uh, I was a substance use counselor working with folks in Austin, and one of my clients had this really, really kind of big problem. They said, you know, I want to go out, I want to be social, but if I choose not to drink, I exclude myself from my social group. I cannot go out at happy hour or to a conference and have a good time. I want to be long, I want to be a part of something, and so uh, that, was a, that was a conversation I had on a Friday and on Monday, I found out that that person lost her life to substance use, so a drunk driving accident. Mm. And that was it for me. Um, I knew that the real need was for social spaces that did not include alcohol because the, the, the work was not between the hours of 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. during business hours in my office, right? The real work was, how do I navigate these social situations? And how do I approach the idea of being sober curious in a way that's fun, that's about celebration and about inclusion? That's awesome. And so we're talking about the term sober curiosity. Can one of you define that for me? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> yes. Um, so my good friend Ruby Warrington actually wrote the book on this. So if you're really interested, she covers the gambit um, and it's evolved incredibly since then. Um, but sober curiosity is really an exploration of someone's um, relationship to alcohol, number one. Um, there's so many paths to sober curiosity. You can be doing it for wellness purposes, for mindfulness purposes. I mean, some people are curious what sober sex is like because they were introduced to sex in college and didn't have a single sober experience. And so um, there's so many motivations behind it. There's not a single timeline around it. It's not I'm sober for ever uh, or I'm sober for a month. Some people are sober for um, a day. Some are saying I'm sober, you know, three days a week. So people are really designing their experiences and trying it on for a size. Yeah, I would add to that that sobriety is a spectrum mm -hmm. and that sober curious is that very needed other end of the spectrum of sober serious. Mm -hmm. And for, I mean, most of my life, all we had was this binary choice. Either you were sober 
and you were like excluded to the kitty table or you were, you know, in recovery, you know, you're, 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 you're a person who can drink and you're having lots of fun. And I think that sober curious was the other end of that spectrum where we can plot sober sometimes, sober for sports, you know, sober for, uh, you know, reason or no reasons at all. Like there's a million plot points on there. So you don't have to be either or. You can just be. And that, that sober curious is an invitation to explore your relationship to alcohol. Yeah. I love how you talk about it on the spectrum because during our prep call, I made a mistake. I was like, let's talk about, you know, sober curiosity and then people with alcohol use disorder. I'm like, those are different, right? And Katie was like, actually. <laughs> so I would love for you to kind of talk about how, like, you know, talking about sobriety on the spectrum is really the more inclusive way yeah. to talk about how we think about drinking. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and we know that, you know, most people, most people drink alcohol, most people drink without problems. And, and a small minority do have you know, some, some serious problems. And at the same time, our society really, like you said, like relegates this one group of people to they have a problem they can never drink again, whereas everyone else should drink as much as they want and glorifies heavy drinking. And so what I love about the Sober Curious movement, these new mocktails, all of these dry January, sober October, those are some other things we could talk about, is this idea of opening up this, this spectrum where it really is a continuum. And, and we can all make choices around how often we want to drink, if we want to you know, have some mocktails or reduce our drinking, or if we don't want to drink at all, and play around with that question of how is, how, what is my relationship? The other question I always like to ask people is like, how is alcohol serving you and how is it not? And, and like just sitting with those questions and with a little bit of mindfulness, we also do a lot of mindfulness-based work, to, to think about those questions. We, we live in a society that really glorifies alcohol as serving us, and sometimes it does. And so when is it serving you? When is it not? When maybe would you not want that drink while you're waiting for the, for the you know, restaurant to open up for a dinner table? So I think it's just really, for me, it, it's a whole new and exciting step in the direction of thinking about um, a society that could really um, embrace people and help people actually who don't want to drink too because that's the other piece right like having that place of of having connection where there isn't maybe that pressure to drink or having an option at a bar if you do go out to a bar and you want to have a mocktail that that option's available to you because how often do you go to a bar and they do, all they have is soda which is like high in sugar and terrible for us so and or you know alcohol so i just really hope that this keeps moving and, and king keeps making fabulous drinks and i was just <laughs> asking Chris about like are you going to franchise so we can have more sands bars all over the country <laughs> so question. I think it's great yeah I mean it's a really good point because yes most people drink but what what's the actual breakdown it almost seems like everybody drinks well in fact 43 percent of drinking age Americans don't drink and yet 100 percent of the experiences, whether it's conferences, weddings, restaurant experiences, bar experiences, obviously, have alcohol as an option, right? So think about the othering that happens when someone is saying, well, where's, my, where's an option for me? Something that's decidedly adult, grown up, sophisticated, right? I'm relegated to a tall glass with a black straw and I'm marked for the rest of the night. So for us, it was, you know, is there this is there a chance to disrupt this 10,000-year-old societal norm of drinking alcohol? 
for the benefits, for the joy, and can we approach it at least um, at least from our perspective, our brand perspective, is can we start from a place of aspiration and desire, right? Western consumerism is driven by aspiration and desire. As a healthcare professional, you know, if you're leading and persuading by fear and intimidation, you're lost already, right? It's probably too late for that patient. It's the same thing here, you know? If we can get someone while they're still making that choice for themselves and help them see how exciting it is, help them see how cool it is, then perhaps they'll make that choice for themselves before it's too late. So that's our, our mission uh, at large. And, and prevention is so key, right? So prevention is, is another piece of this. And the other thing that's really happening right now is the younger generation, like this is intergenerational, right? That the, the younger generation coming up now are actually drinking way less and not glorifying alcohol use. Mm-hmm. I just was at my niece's graduation and her uncle was trying to get her to drink and I was not down with that, but, um, <laughs> but she was like, no, I don't really want that. I want to remember this day. Mm. And it was really special. It was like such a sweet thing. And you know, we, yeah, we miss so much <laughs> of our lives for those people who drink really heavily by, by just you know, not having those experiences. And, and that's kind of where mindfulness comes in too, of, of really having those mindful moments. But um, sorry, I'm on a tangent, but prevention's key. And I'm <laughs> really excited about, you know, this is an opportunity for everyone to prevent going down the road of a severe problem. And I just, on the idea of prevention, I've been working with the University of Texas at Austin to pilot a program called SHIFT, and it's an acronym. It's an intention to offer folks who are in college alternatives that are accessible, delicious, fun. Um, It's great that you can go to a tailgate party and have a beer and no one questions whether it's a Heineken alcohol or you know whatever the the brand is or non-alcoholic. That kind of inclusion makes prevention seem cool, makes it seem like it's trending, something that you want to be a part of. And so I'm really excited that we think about prevention and the idea of sober curiosity because that helps to form the basis, right? If you look at alcohol through the lens of, you know what, I can have fun without it. I've had experiences, I've gone to football games, I've gone to weddings, I've done all these fun things without alcohol. It makes it easier to question how alcohol is interacting with your life. And you said something interesting um, about, you know, that you're marked, right? You have this like big seltzer and you're like, oh, not drinking today. Right. Um, I feel like oftentimes people feel the need to apologize, yes. right? For, for not drinking or like you have to have a reason or if you say, oh, I'm sober, mm-hmm. everyone assumes you have a problem. Yeah. So how would all of you recommend, you know, communicating that, whether that's with like a friend, a spouse, a partner, or for the medical professionals here, the kind of talk you know, within the community or with patients about, about sober curiosity. Hmm. I actually have a, a sort of, for me, a harrowing story of um, when we were doing research on building kin and how, how we would approach this. And I, I was initially trying to solve the problem for, for myself and, and women in a similar predicament of, you know, having a full-time job, having a side hustle, wanting to get to yoga at 5 a.m., having this, you know, problematic alcohol use in my family that I'm denying, going out and having 13 drinks when I finally added it up every single week with my friends, having this really demanding social schedule in New York. And so I, I started by visiting some bars and having this conversation with the bartenders first. And, like, how would you talk to 
your customer about something like this or your guest about these options. Um, because I had witnessed some other brands that um, existed, whether it was a non-alk beer, um, some of the ones that have existed on the market for a really long time perhaps weren't focused on flavor. Um, and so they would say, oh, you, you really don't want that, right? And so they would sort of kind of bait them back into the alcohol experience. And there was a woman who walked in when I was in the midst of this research. Um, she walked in before open, and it was like 4.30, and um, she comes in kind of harried, and she said, um, I'm gonna come in in about two hours and I'm gonna order a vodka tonic um, and I want you to serve me tonic water with lime and please don't mention it, right? And so whatever was going on through her head and I later did find out um, because it was important to me, right? What, what these motivations are and what these women were going through. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I think that kind of apology, that kind of workaround that we have to have that we find it so important in order to keep our agency um, you know, is something that as advocates in the space, um, whether we're hosts or, or brand makers, um, is to give someone something to hang their head on, something exciting, something that they can be proud of. Um, so I think there's a lot of different conversations, as we said, if there's one person, uh, or if there's a million people that choose this option, there are a million different reasons why. Um, so I think finding and holding on to that why, um, being able to bring someone into the conversation, like, and I need your support while we're out, whatever that looks like, and it's baby steps. You know, so having them be your, your wing person while you're out is incredibly important. That's how you have that bond and you can keep it going. I long for the day when the idea of not drinking for whatever reason is normalized. Yeah. It just, it, it shouldn't have to come with an explanation. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a lot of friends who are plant-based and vegan. They don't launch into like this, like, well, in 1993, like it's just, <laughs> I don't eat meat. Like, oh, cool. There's all these other options for you to try, right? And I think that uh, it's, it's folks in this room right here, especially in the medical field and health field, uh, that if we can normalize the idea of sober curiosity and say, okay, well, your alcohol intake, it looks a little excessive. Uh, you know, using one of the alcohol assessment models, like, let's not call it alcohol. Let's just say you're just on a sober curious journey yeah. and maybe encourage someone to, to go down that path in a mindful way that's about this kind of wonderful curiosity of what my life looks like sans alcohol, right? Um, that's a, I want that day to come quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And normalizing and destigmatizing too, because there is a lot of stigma wrapped up in that question. Why aren't you drinking tonight? Right? And, and, you know, you might flip it around and say, well, why are you, you know, like, I, and, and so I think, um, I think that's the other benefit of the Sober Curious movement and all of these new approaches is, is really trying to also destigmatize, recognizing the spectrum and say that, hey, like, whatever you choose to do, that's your path, right? And I'm on my path and, and this is what I'm doing for me, for my wellness, for my health, so I feel good tomorrow, so I can go for a run tomorrow. Um, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, that, but it, it really is that agency that Jen was talking about, and I love that. Yeah, I think the saddest part of, you know, I've been at this now seven years, and what I've learned is that when someone's asking you that, it's usually about themselves. Yeah. And so for me, I've heard all kinds of fun things, you know, like, oh, girl, I have no idea what it was doing to my sex life, let me tell you. And then, you know, launching into this conversation that doesn't, create this sort of tension, but then also brings them into the, you know, into the experience. Um, there's all kinds of tactics on, on how to do it, and there's no perfect way, certainly. Um, but it's sort of acknowledging that when someone's asking you that question, especially in the moment, it's usually just a reflection on their nervousness around, oh, shit, she's not drinking, now what? The vibe is totally messed up, <laughs> right? And being like, no, we can still have fun. Trust me, it's gonna be great. 
what I'm hearing is that a lot of you are talking about coping mechanisms, mm -hmm. right? And I think with COVID-19, harm reduction really entered the national vernacular, right? Yeah. Like, we're saying, okay, like if you're gonna do this, then maybe wear a mask, um, try the social distance if you need to see people and thinking about thinking about harm reduction. So Katie, like this is your expertise. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how we could think about alcohol um, in the context of harm reduction and maybe like, is there anything from COVID that might be helpful in terms of thinking about this? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm so glad we're also talking about harm reduction because harm reduction means is, is, there's also a, a spectrum of harm reduction, right? And I always say that, if you're deciding to be sober serious, like that's the ultimate harm reduction, right? And then, but there's other gradations of harm reduction. You might decide that you wanna reduce the quantity of your drinking when you drink or the frequency in which you drink. Maybe have a couple nights a week where you don't drink at all. Maybe have weeks at a time or, or maybe you don't wanna change your drinking, but you wanna look at the harm it's causing in your life. And so maybe you don't wanna, you know, drive after drinking. Maybe you don't, maybe you wanna spend time with your kids without drinking. Maybe you wanna do other things without drinking to, to kind of change how drinking might be harming your life. So it's again that kind of question of what is your relationship with alcohol and and you know historically um, harm reduction has been kind of a, a, a person, a street-led movement, right? And, and what we've seen with the opioid use disorder poisoning crisis in our nation is that more and more people are recognizing like, no, we need to have alternative options for people. And I think the same is true for alcohol, that we need to have alternative options for people to reduce their drinking. Um, from a public health perspective, I did the math once, and if we all just reduced our drinking a little bit, the global mortality and morbidity caused by alcohol would just like drastically decrease. So rather than focusing solely on the, the percentage of people who have a problem, we should think more globally about all of us reducing our drinking, doing our part. And that, that there's climate impacts of, of drinking. There are, you know, obviously health and wellness impacts. And, and so, where COVID comes in that I think is really interesting is we did see in, a, in certain age groups and per, particularly women of my age and a little bit older, a lot, an increase in drinking because of, of drinking to cope with, with the stressors of COVID. And what's come from that now that I'm starting to see is more and more women turning to sober curious, turning to mindful drinking, turning to these different options of, okay, you know what? I don't like where my drinking got during this pandemic and I really wanna dial it back now. And so I think it's actually raising some awareness among people who maybe, you know, maybe had a little bit of a, a problem or, or sometimes had problems, but not a lot, but now we're actually taking a look at it. And so I think, I think that's where we're kind of at right now. And I hope we can continue to see that trend of, of people just wanting to, to take a look and is this serving me or not? Yeah, it's really scary. This, the stats that came out, I think it was in 2021 when the National uh, Institute for um, Alcoholism and Addiction um, uh, did announce that women for the first time ever were out drinking men and that um, binge drinking was up was 41%, mm -hmm. something insane, um, particularly among women. And so the question is, are these coping mechanisms? What is really going on? And so as healthcare professionals, you know, you have your intake forms. I can tell you 100% of us are lying about how much we drink. <laughs> you gotta ask the question because the binge drinking is what's getting us. It's not the casual glass of wine a night. It's literally the eight, nine glasses or drinks that we're having on a Saturday because the kids aren't around or whatever it is, right? So it's that kind of thing that we're never gonna talk about in a clinical setting. 
um, and it's those questions and or the encouragement of like, you know what, there's this sober curiosity movement um, that can help someone perhaps reflect on um, how they are coping with stress. There is a lot of it right now. There's Absolutely. economic crisis happening. There's a health crisis. So you know, those are those are definitely things to look at. And um, and I, I I think we have been indoctrinated to believe that substance abuse looks one way, and it really doesn't. It knows no bounds, socioeconomic or otherwise. And so um, not discriminating in the in the office, I think it's important as well, and really looking at everyone as someone who could be assisted in this. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned kind of like what what it looks like when women binge drink. Mm -hmm. I was talking to my cousin, she's a teacher in New Jersey, mm -hmm. and she said, you won't believe the number of parents who show up to T-ball at 9 a.m. with their coffee mug, but mm -hmm. it's not coffee in it, it's wine. Yep. And you know, yeah. they're all like, wine o'clock, ha ha, so fun. Yep. And my cousin's like, it's 9 a.m. and you're watching your kid play T-ball. To be fair, my dad said watching me play T-ball was the worst experience of his life. <laughs> so, you know, shout out to the parents who are watching their kids play T-ball. But I was really struck by that, you know, the fact that that's kind of like the wine o'clock of it all, the TJ Maxx wooden signs that mom oh. needs a drink. And I'm, I'm curious, like, do you see this as a cultural shift where, you know, we don't have childcare in this country, women are putting, you know, full-time jobs at the office, full-time jobs at home, they don't have support. And I'm curious if, if that's, you know, what we're seeing of an uptick is just like the, the American culture of how society does not support women, particularly moms, um, and how you're thinking about ways that we could shift that. Yeah, 100%. And I think it is fighting this narrative of like wine o'clock and wine moms on Twitter. And, and that's, it's, it's a big thing, you know, and it is the glorification of, of alcohol consumption. But it starts with the advertisers. Unfortunately, big alcohol is a huge problem in this. Lobbying is a huge problem in this. Um, you know, for every one ad that you see that's obviously targeted to a man, there are two for a woman, right? Why? Because one, women are out drinking men, gotta keep selling to them. Two, women are the shoppers of the home. And so we constantly are berated and constantly targeted by these messages that if you're not drinking, you're not enough. I remember Jack Daniels commercial, I don't know if you guys remember this, but it was kind of like when I put my, st my stake in the ground and I was like, all right, I'm doing this business. Let's just like, let's get ready. <laughs> Roll um, the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jack Daniels launched a campaign to get more women to drink and they called it Jane Daniels. And I don't know if you guys remember this, and it was Mila Kunis in her black power suit at the bar and she yeah. was like, pass me that whiskey you know and so which is sexy you know what I mean like she looks great right I, like yeah, let's totally. be serious she looked amazing um and so if you weren't drinking that might have turned you onto it why not but the reality is like this does have a repercussion you know as I mentioned consumerism is driven by desire and so um you know I think it's just changing that changing the face changing the thing that's cool, um, and then reducing some of the things, you know, allowing for, for better stress relief protocols, encouraging that across our system. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to do that. You guys are way smarter than I, um, <laughs> and, and could, could help to develop programs, hopefully for moms, for parents, for people of, of all walks, really. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I think it really does start with changing the narrative. If we don't, if we don't do that, these moms are going to continue doing that because it's a, it's a bonding experience too. You know, at the end of the day, um, so allowing for you know healthier ways for us to come together, I think is really important. Yeah.
And, and since there are healthcare providers here, I, you know, I think screening really is important and not assuming anything. So I actually had a healthcare provider do the, you know, questions of that they're mandated to do as part of their record to ask me about my drinking. And um, she said, so do you drink alcohol? I said, yes. And then she said, so like one to two drinks a week? <laughs> <laughs> like, didn't give me an opportunity to, with an open-ended question. Right. Like, what was that? I was like, what did you just do? I was like, why? No, you're supposed to ask me. Here's how you do it. <laughs> like, you're supposed to ask me questions about this. And, and so I think, you know, not, like, reducing stigma by not being afraid. You, you ask about all sorts of health behaviors of your patients. And I can tell you that alcohol is probably having a bigger effect on their health than a lot of those other things you're asking about. So alcohol, we know it impacts sleep, it impacts energy levels, it impacts activity level, it impacts hypertension, it impacts diabetes. It, like every single disease state, alcohol has a play in that. And so if you're not asking about alcohol, you might be missing one of the main reasons that your client or your patient is coming to see you for insert medical problem X here. And so we really need to do, I think the healthcare industry as a whole, sorry, but often needs to do a lot better of, of really taking those questions seriously. And, the, and you know, they're in the electronic medical record for a reason because we know that screening actually helps people pay attention to their drinking and reduce their drinking. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, panel, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you? Hmm. Hmm. Before we turn it over to Q&A so you'll get grilled. <laughs> I think we should talk about connection, and I'd really love to hear Chris tell us a little bit more about Sansbar and what that's like, because the, the thing that, as, as a clinical psychologist, that I worry about, too, when people, their entire social life does revolve around drinking, is we know social, social isolation is also a big problem, right? And I don't want a client to stop drinking and never leave their home and have no more social life. I want them to have social connection and want them to be connected to others. So. I think conne connection, kin connection, really, really yeah. important. <laughs> and um, would love to hear more about Sansbar and how that connection goes. Yeah, I, I think the basis of Sansbar is connection. I, I, I believe that while alcohol use disorder is a huge issue, loneliness is a greater one. And it's the epidemic, the pandemic, that we don't really talk about that often, right? Um, it, it, you know, creates more mental health problems, can lead to uh, suicide and other self-harming behaviors. And so connection is key. And that is why uh, we do what we do at Sandsbar. The drinks are nice. I love, the, I love the drinks. I think they're great. But that's not the product. Right. The product is going to a space where you can be deeply known and understood by someone else. And you get to do the same. And there's just not many third spaces where we can do that. We can practice being a friend and being kind, um, singing karaoke without alcohol, <laughs> like, going to drag shows, like having these experiences which make life beautiful, make life worth living. That doesn't happen in isolation. And I want everyone to realize that the best version of themselves is alcohol free. And so that's what we do at Sandsbar. We create these connective experiences so that people can understand that I, I'm enough. I don't need alcohol to make me feel anything. No. Chris, Actually, I have a follow-up for you on that. So you're talking about the third place, right? Mm -hmm. Can you explain what that means? And then also, like, does that third place tend to be alcohol? Like, is alcohol at the center of a lot of third places? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Short answer, yes. Uh, third place is, refers to that space between work and home, right? And uh, for some people, most people, that looks like a bar, restaurant, um, some kind of social spot where you go in and have a few drinks with your friends. It's cheers, you know? It's, it's that place where everyone knows your name. 
And uh, there's not very many that are for adults um, that just center around having those connective experiences. And that's, that's why I want Sands Bar to be all the bar without the booze, right? A space where you can come in and have a good time and meet new people, right? It's hard to meet new people at the library. <laughs> like, hey, how are you? My name's Kurt. It's, it's hard to do that. Um, you need a space like a bar, right? That, that engenders meeting new people, uh, you know, j inserting yourself into a conversation and just, just riffing and talking. Like, mm -hmm. that does not happen in, in most spaces. So the, the dream, the vision is to have more spaces like this across the country. It's mm -hmm. awesome. Even in self-care, you know, we, we relate this to better health. Well, if you look at your self-care rituals, whether it's going to the gym, yoga, whatever, putting your moisturizer on, it's a solo act, right? Yeah. Taking a pill, solo act. And so what are rituals that we can think about incorporating into this new society we're dreaming up um, that allow us to be together? You know, I've, I've often invited girlfriends or guy friends to yoga and, you know, we're not sitting there and being like, how's your mom? You know, it's, we're in yoga. Very serious. Um, and so places like Science Bar are just such a cool way to have that same experience. You're not missing anything. It's like great spot, comedy shows, all these great things that you can catch um, and you can leave feeling amazing and still catch your class in the morning. You know, it, there's just so much compounding benefit to seeking a place like this out. And having that connection too, I think, makes people feel more comfortable in themselves. Yeah. You know, and you're kind of gaining that, like, oh, I like, you're saying that, like, I like who I am. Yeah, exactly. And Gen Z, by the way, loves who they are. They hate the planet. They think the planet is doomed. But they think they're pretty cool. And so thinking about that, like, having more places for, for them to go and hang out, because for them, alcohol, they're beyond alcohol. You know, they think it's boomer tech. No offense, I've heard this. This is real life. Um, so they're on to other things. They're trying to experiment with, you know, herbs. They're trying to experiment with mindfulness. Um, and they're really serious about their causes. And so thinking about how, how to lay the tracks for the next generation to be able to find this communion together and to inspire one another, um, they're going to need it. They're going to demand it. You know, for us, it's a novelty. For them, it's a mandate. Um, and so, you know, it's our work to continue spreading the good word. It's our work to continue building and being successful so that we can bring this to our kids and so that this movement can outlive us all. Amazing. Well, thank you, panel, so much. This was so lovely. And we would love to open up the floor to questions. Um, this woman over here, we have mics, I believe. Thank you. Um, we're so excited to hear from you. So make sure you ask some questions. We have a great panel and they're very excited to talk to you. Um, hey. Hi, I'm Bella Donovan. I'm a student at University of Nebraska Omaha. Hi, Bella. Um, so I'm just curious. So I'm in. I'm in Greek life. I'm in a sorority. So I see people drink a lot all the time. Yeah. And so it's interesting to hear you say that Gen Z doesn't like alcohol because I've had like a very, I guess, a very different view of that. Honestly. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just curious, like, what you guys do to kind of get in there early on and do that preventative action so that you know like I hear a lot of people say like oh like you can't drink too much in college you're in college like it's fine when it's like not fine like it's probably a problem and so I'm just curious like how you guys are working towards kind of getting in there early and like destigmatizing like not drinking in college yeah I, I can speak to what we've what we've done historically some of the research so we um I did my graduate work at the University of Washington where we developed a, a program called the Alcohol Skills Training Program, which is for college students. And it's really, like I always used to joke, I used to lead the groups and I would say, 
here's the like after school program where I'm going to teach you how to drink better. And we would really just cover how to protect yourself from reducing harm, how to prevent, you know, overdosing on alcohol, all the, you know, ways that you can protect your friends by being a good bystander to them um, to reduce risk of sexual assault, because that's really common on, on college campuses as well, almost always tied to alcohol. And so we developed those programs that are really about, you know, not telling students you can never drink again, but really telling them here's ways of drinking with less harm. And, you know, we know that GPA is really tightly tied to alcohol use. The other thing we've been doing recently is a, a fund um, activity that we, we call substance-free activity scheduling. So it's like, what are your, what are the, what are your, your activities? And like, how many of them include alcohol and how many don't include alcohol? And like, maybe you want to join an, a club sports team or maybe you want to join this, this other group that's like some, some of your activities are non-alcohol. So that, not saying you can never drink again, but trying to bring that into the college experience and have those connections and those shared moments with people that don't necessarily always include alcohol mm. and yeah i think that uh greek life is a microcosm of the <laughs> world right it's a highly concentrated <laughs> microcosm right and and just like jen was saying we think everyone drinks i know people in greek life uh, in, in college now that don't drink we just don't hear about them right we hear about the fraternity person who overdosed or the person, you know, the, the hazing, that's what we hear about. We don't hear those other stories. And what we've done with Shift at the University of Texas is really offer those like equally attractive non-alcoholic, they're called ENABs, equally attractive non-alcoholic beverages at Greek life events. So if you're going to have a party, you're going to have a bunch of people there, have what you're going to have, but also have kin, mm -hmm. right? So that you can moderate or reduce or eliminate your, your alcohol use. Yeah, I do think it's about access. And if you're part of this long-standing tradition of drinking in Greek life, which is very real, um, to Chris's point, you know, if you find that one person, that one girl that, you know, doesn't think it's cool or had a really bad experience supporting her and being like, you know what, let's not drink for a week. Let's be arm in arm in this because I hated my experience when I drink too much too. And really starting that support and talking about it maybe in the lens of mental health. Um, you know, perhaps there's a, an initiative that you guys are thinking about internally um, that, that can really drive that home. I know women's health was a big one for me in Greek life, Greek life and I wish I had the courage to, to talk to the other women around me and say, you know what, this kind of sucks. <laughs> I hate feeling hungover. I hate waking up and feeling like, what did I do? What did I say? That level of anxiety is just so draining. So yeah, I think it takes advocacy within. And what we try to do as a brand is, is make it joyful and make it cool so that you guys feel proud to, to start that narrative, that conversation. That's great. And those are all great suggestions. I'll add harm reduction is a good model to think about. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen on TikTok Gen Z walking around with a, like a gallon, like a water bottle, like a water gallon. Right. Um, and it's their own jungle juice that they made and then brought to the party. Because mm -hmm. when I was in college, you would go to a frat party, somebody hands you a red solo cup, it's sloshing with some red liquid. You all know what's in it. You all know who made it. Greek life, there's a higher rate of getting drugged um, than like the normal, like the general university population. You're just at higher risk. Um, and that's not any fault of your own, right? It's just like, that's the environment that you're in. Um, and so if you think about harm reduction and being like, okay, like I'm gonna drink, but I'm bringing my own alcohol. I mixed it. I know how much is in there. I can control how I'm drinking and what I'm drinking versus, you know, being in a space where you don't have control over those things. Um, and so I've seen on TikTok harm reduction experts 
like promoting this and saying like, if you're going to drink and you are going to binge drink, this is the safer way to do it. Um, and so that's just my, my two cents. <laughs> and it's also super great because people don't know what's in that jug. So there doesn't have to be any alcohol in there at all. And you can be like sloshing it down all <laughs> night long and people will think you are the life of the party because you can really handle your liquor. <laughs> and yeah, you can handle your non-alcoholic gallon jug. So Was that helpful? Uh, Did we give you good tips? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Any other questions? Um, right over here. Thank you. Hi, I'm Kala. I'm a healthcare provider here in Colorado. My primary population is um, assigned female at birth, and it's not hard for me to, when I'm doing counseling, kind of incorporate the mommy wine sort of talk, or breast health, right, and alcohol's relationship to breast cancer increases, so that's fine. What I'm most interested in is two things. One is I also think alcohol is pretty tied to ideas of masculinity, mm -hmm. um, and I would like to know both as either a, a provider, any tips that you might have in terms of how to introduce and talk to counsel, motivate, um, assign male at birth patients, um, how to maybe reduce or eliminate alcohol and, and recognize their, um, the harm they might be causing. And then at a personal level, right, in and amongst informally friends who we think might have a, have a problem, what would be a gentle way as, as not their healthcare provider to maybe suggest that we're concerned about them? Great question. I'll, I'll, I can speak to the latter more, but the first one, I mean, I think there's nothing more masculine than like being able to not have a drink, right? Like that is really sexy and amazing. Um, and, and then also, I would also raise issues of like muscle mass. If you care about muscle mass, well, and that alcohol is going to affect that um, and not in the good direction. So, um, so that's one thing I would say. So, I mean, I think, I think it's really important to try to reduce stigma around alcohol and alcohol-related problems. So if we're concerned about someone, we don't make it about what they're drinking, but how they're drinking is getting in the way of maybe their values. And so, like, what do they really value? And so opening up conversations about that and, like, nine times out of 10, people will come around to drinking, that, that that may be getting in the way. We don't need to like watch people's alcohol use. We don't need to like be police that are like, I'm so concerned about your drinking. It's not about the drinking, it's about what drinking is doing in their lives that we're concerned about. So focus on that, that you're concerned about this piece of their life that they, you think they value. And that's really what matters, not the drinking, because that's the other thing. What we know is that people can actually successfully reduce their drinking and have really good lives and be high functioning and have good well-being without identifying as having a problem. And, and, and what happens is like life gets, good life gets in the way. And so helping people identify that good life that's gonna get in the way of drinking is, is what I would recommend for people who are worried about, about their loved ones. I would just add to that that so much of what I've seen work with uh, those who identify as men is community, community for everyone, but especially men because we're not socialized to process our emotions, right? And so it's great when we're all kind of able to like just kind of grunt and, you know, bang our hand, you know, like you know, do the caveman thing, you know, um, all together. And then from that evolves real conversation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's a lot of, lot of ma masculinity is in this idea that you cannot be emotive. And so much of what 
you're taught or you're told when you're questioned about your substance use is guilt and shame based. And guilt and shame does not work for anybody, right? Um, so that's, that'd be my perspective there. Yeah, I can just speak to um, the customers that, that we have that identify as male and talk to us specifically about their experience. And, um, you know, they love to come at it from the perspective of self-optimization. So, and talking about biohacking, right? And all of the cool um, nuances that, that are related, um, whether it's they're following a Tim Ferriss or, you know, uh, Joe Dispenza or someone, I'm sure uh, any MDs out there are hearing, well, I found out on Tim Ferriss that if I eat two crackers before 7 a.m., my libido's gonna go through the roof. And so they really want these hacks, you know, to better to a better life. And I can tell you, I mean, we heard so many from Katie, but the long list of things that will improve, starting with energy and libido, right? Muscle mass, all of these things um, can ascertain that as they experiment with this, as they try sober curiosity on size, they're gonna see the results. Men see results faster than women. Mm-hmm. That's the reality. So for me, that's what I've seen. Like they, we have some of the highest repeat rates with men, um, certainly for, with, our, with our product. Did that answer your question as we get the mic over here to the woman in the sweater? Hi, um, what a great topic. I really love the word sober curious. I think I've been that for a long time and didn't have language for it. Because <laughs> I, I barely drink, but sometimes I do, but I, but I really don't because I don't feel good. Anyway, and I happen to be sitting here to curse me with a sorority sister from college. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking back about, um, and was in a band where we filled um, Jack Daniels bottles with iced tea so that we could chug it on stage or <laughs> vodka bottles with water. Yeah. I'm not saying that I think that's necessarily great because then it looks like we're chugging it on stage. <laughs> anyway, my question, um, my question is this. Um, you've talked a lot about people's reason for drinking and it sounds like a lot of it is around social lubricant and coming together and connection, which is so important and I'm glad there are alternatives. But I feel like I know people now who are drinking because they need to be numb, like from a sense of overwhelmedness. And I'm just wondering about your thoughts about that and um, an approach for that. Yeah. That is very real. And I think we've heard it a lot. I know I heard it today in a lot of the women's health panels. Um, But this concept of burnout is real. It's pervasive. And so I think, you know, certainly us as as a community, as, as a brand, we are constantly working holistically with different, uh, different MDs, different providers, different uh, therapists that can help us to share tips on how to deal with you know, our lives today, our modern lives, whether that's to um, even just to find some time in the morning for mindfulness, right? Like bracketing out these times for, um, for work, for being present with family, for checking our phones, you know, and sharing some of the interesting tidbits that we're finding. Every single day, there's a new thing to learn about neuroscience. And a lot of it is, is stemming from, uh, you know, the impact stress has on the brain. Um, one tip that we shared recently was, you know, when you look down at your phone constantly, you're literally restricting your breath, right? The, the actual pathway for oxygen to, to be absorbed by the brain. And so, of course, you're feeling fatigued. Of course, you're feeling like a lesser version of yourself. How can you tackle all of these challenges in your life when you are running at half-mast? It's impossible, right? So being able to say, hey, how about you look up? And we'll even do a social media post. Like, this is your chance to look up, look around you, and look at the horizon. 
because our lizard brains will remind you that that's what safety is. If you have the agency to look up and look around you, right, and take a deep breath, your body feels at ease. And so it's these little micro moments that can literally shape your neurochemistry, your endocrine system, to help you relax and help you cope better. So it's not just the, the drinking, it's not just the drinking occasions where you can help yourself, it's little moments throughout the day. Um, and so it is pervasive, it's hard, it's a hard problem to solve, and there's so many, you know, I wish I could provide a nanny to all of these people that are calling me with, with challenges that they're facing at home because that's a big part of it, right? Um, but I think just the micro moments, helping people to make those shifts throughout the day um, really have a big impact as well. Great, yeah. and I think we have time for one more question. So can I just add one to, to that last bit? Please. It's just, um, so a lot of people think that alcohol relieves negative affect or relieves boredom or relieves stress. And actually what we've done is, is smartphone surveys of people like before and after drinking and it doesn't. And so we actually do that with people too of like have them rate their mood prior to and after drinking and engage in some mindful drinking. So like really paying attention to mood and sensation and feeling before, during, after drinking. And people will come back and be like, yeah, actually it doesn't make me feel better. I thought it did. I have the belief that it did, but it, it actually didn't. No. So, yeah. My question is to all the panelists. Um, how do you decolonize sober curious? <laughs> what I'm saying is I am Mexican. I can't go up to my cousin and be like, hey, primo, are you sober curioso? <laughs> He's going to like look at me like some weird person, but I think everyone in my family should join this movement. How do you feel like we can approach different types of demographics and groups out there? Uh, I'll share, we're, we're actually working right now on um, culturally tailoring and centering a mindfulness intervention that we developed for Hispanic, Latino, Latin groups in New Mexico. And so really working with the community to try to understand like, what would this look like for you? What would be helpful? Because the community has the answers. I don't have the answers for that community. Um, and so I think, you know, same thing would go for super curious, like don't, don't take the colonization of sober curious into your community, like create something in your community that, that makes sense for you. Um, that would be my advice. I wanna be able to see myself in the ritual, right? So culturally, I think there are so many nuances that lend themselves to being able to translate the experience, right? It's a very experiential thing. Once somebody can actually see the benefit, be there with you and still have fun, like no harm, no foul. Oh, I didn't have a drink or I didn't have alcohol but I still had a great time, right? And we still feel, we still feel together, especially speaking from a, a Latino perspective. It's like, you know, the family aspect, that cohesion is so important. So I know for me, I always have a sangria, alcoholic, non-alcoholic. You can choose, nobody's watching, you know? And there's still, it's the same music, it's the same experience, but then also just being like, oh my gosh, you know, and sharing all the benefits. I think what's big in the Latin community, at least in my family, it's like sharing tips. Like I wanna be, I always wanna be better in some way, or I always wanna feel great, look great. We're very vain in my family. And so if I could tell my grandmother, hey, yeah, yeah, just, you know, your skin's gonna glow if you, you know, switch out your nightly glass of wine or that Budweiser, she loves Budweiser, um, <laughs> for an athletic brew, um, then you're gonna look amazing. And she, she calls me later, she's like, Mija, you have no idea. I woke up and my eyebrows were fuller. And then it's like, <laughs> done, I have her for life. Um, so I really think it's recentering around what your cultural experience is. Yeah, I think from a larger perspective, zooming out, all the way, it's access to capital, period. Mm -hmm. The only way you decolonize anything, tech, 
medicine, anything is access to capital. And there's uh, brilliant founders and thinkers in this space who do not get the same kind of capital that um, their white counterparts get. And I think that that's something that needs to change as we evolve this non-alcoholic movement. It's so true. And also the nuances in communities. I mean, that's the thing. It's, our work is not going to be done until we can actually go into food deserts, into impoverished communities, and actually be able to, I mean, at the very basic level, see an organic carrot and a 40, right? Like right now, it's more accessible to get a 40 ounce of beer than it is a healthy piece of produce, right? So it's like, you're not going to see kin there for a while. That's taking me, you know, I've been at it seven years. Um, so it's going to take me a while to get there, but advocating at that level to, to make sure that there is acknowledgement at the public health level that we need to be incorporating healthier and, and providing access to healthier options across the board. Amazing. Well, please give it up for this amazing panel. All of you did a wonderful job. Thank you all so much for coming. We really appreciate it. Cheers. 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 Yeah. <laughs>